In the passages we're going to be covering today, we're going to be looking at some important events that occurred during Jesus' infancy and when he was a young man. So Luke chapter 2, we're going to be starting out in, Luke, in verse 21. Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And the Word of God says, When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, was finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as, it written, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. In this section we just read, we see the infant Jesus being presented in the temple and how two important meetings occurred there. Luke begins here by informing us how after Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph obediently performed all the Jewish customs based on God's Old Testament revelation. This was done in order to show that even, even as an infant, Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the law through the actions of his parents. So here, because his parents were, uh, his parent, because of his parents' obedience, Jesus now was also fulfilling the law through them because he couldn't do it himself. He was just a child. Now, within these first five verses, there are three different rituals that are described. First, there was the circumcision of Jesus. Just like with John, in chapter 1, verse 57, this took place when he was eight years old, or eight, eight days old, I'm sorry. Eight, eight years old would have been, well, yeah, would have been a memorable experience. Well, this took place when he was eight days old. This act dedicated the baby to the covenant, the covenant of faith to the Jews, of the Jews, a covenant initiated long ago between God and Abraham in Genesis 17. And just like we also saw in John's story, on the same day, the child was officially named. He would be called Jesus, just as the angel instructed. At long last, God's Savior was here. The second ceremony concerned the purification of Mary. When Jesus was about 40 days old, Mary and Joseph came to the temple for the purification rites described in Leviticus 12. According to the law that God gave Moses, a woman, a woman will be unclean seven days as she is during her days of menstrual impurity. After the male child is circumcised on the eighth day, she will continue in her purification from her bleeding for another 33 days. It then says in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, that when her days of purification are complete, she is to bring to the priest a year-old male lamb for a burnt offering, a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. He will present them before the Lord and make atonement on her behalf. This then would complete her purification process and make her clean. Now, 
there was a small provision. If they couldn't afford a lamb, they were permitted to take two turtle doves or two pigeons to be the burnt and sin offering. Now, the fact that Mary brought no lamb, but only two young pigeons, is a reflection of the poverty into which Jesus was born into. Now, the third ritual that was, the third ritual was a presentation of Jesus at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, originally God had decreed that every firstborn son belonged to him. And, to, and in order for an ownership to change, to take place, parents had to buy back or redeem them. A payment of five shekels became standard, the standard redemption price for all firstborn and could be paid to any priest at any place. Now, we're not specifically told that this happened, but if this is what they did, do you see the irony? Joseph and Mary had to pay, had to pay to redeem the Redeemer, who would one day redeem us with his precious blood. Now, I also want to briefly share with you a couple of a couple of other similarities I see between this passage and what occurs when we present ourselves before the cross of Jesus. We are inwardly circumcised. When you become born again, the Holy Spirit makes his home in you and separates you unto God by changing your heart. Paul calls this change the circumcision of the heart. So in a sense, again, you're not circumcised outwardly like the Jews do, but you're circumcised inwardly and you become a part of his people. We're also purified from the stains of sin. The sacrificial blood of Christ cleanses us and purifies or cleanses and purifies you so that when you come before God, you, so that you can come before God innocent from the guilt and shame of all past, present, and future sin. In the New Living Translation, Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22, says this, Dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new a, a new and life-giving way through the curtain into God's most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with, with sincere hearts, fully trusting Him. For our guilty consciousness, consciousness have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. We've been purified. We've been cleansed. We can come before him now and just worship him, honor him, and, and not feel any guilt or shame for the things that we've done. And lastly, we're dedicating ourselves. The moment you surrender your life to Jesus, you're giving your heart, your mind, and your body totally and completely to the purposes and service and service of the Lord.
Romans chapter 6 verse 13 says, As those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. This is what a dedication is. You're just saying, Lord, here I am. Use me in any way you want. I'm yours. I want to do your will. I'm your servant. And that's a lifetime commitment. That is completely a lifetime. You can't just say, you know what, Lord, I'm done serving. I need to take a break. Um, I'm tired. I need to take, you know, a few months off and go to, you know, and just sit at the beach in, in Mexico somewhere. No. I mean, you can do that, but you're still going to be serving the Lord. You know, you're still, you can still take a vacation and all that, but you're still in the service of the Lord. You're his child. You've been circumcised. You belong to him. And you'll be serving him. Now, in the next section we'll be reading, Luke will uh, tell us that during the performance of these rituals, two encounters incurred in the temple. So let's pick up in verse 25 and read about those encounters now. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up on his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother, his father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed. And that will be a sign, sorry. Uh, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul, and the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel, or redemption of Jerusalem. 39, verse 39, when they, when they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Simeon and Anna, 
both faithful and devout servants of God, met Jesus in the temple and explained his calling and ministry. First, we'll examine Simeon's encounter. Luke begins here by giving us four descriptions of Simeon. First, we're told that he was just and devout. This means that he conformed to God's expectation, expectations, lived in a right relationship with him. He feared and showed reverence for God and took God's promises seriously. Secondly, Simeon is also described as a man waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Israel's consolation spoke of the comfort and hope of God's plan for his people. But more specifically, it referred to the Messiah's role in that plan. Simeon expected that to happen any day because the Spirit of God had given him a promise that, he's, that he was to live long enough to see the Lord's Christ. Now, Although it is possible he may have heard the rumors that the Messiah had come, it was the Spirit. It was the Spirit who led him to the temple that day. See, Simeon was a man who knew how to be led by the Holy Spirit, be taught by the Word of God, and be obedient to the will of God. And because of this, God kept his promise by guiding him to the right place at the right time. Upon seeing the child Jesus, he took him in his arms. Praising God, Simeon first claimed that he could now depart in peace. It was as if Simeon were commanded by God to keep a lonely watch through the night until the sun came up. So for him, when he was holding Jesus in his arms, this was God's sunrise. And because Jesus had come, Simeon's watch had ended. Now he could die because he had now personally seen God's salvation. The amazing thing about Simeon's prophecy is that it shows that salvation was a light revealing God, his purposes, and his ways to all people, Jew and Gentile alike. Well, while in his arms, we're told in verses 33 to 35 that Simeon blessed the parents and then gave Mary a direct prophetic word, which consisted of four parts. First, this child was destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Those who were arrogant, unrepentant, and unbelieving would fall and be punished. However, those who humbled themselves, repented of their sins, and received the Lord Jesus would rise and be blessed. Second, the child was destined for a sign which will be spoken against. His very presence on earth proved a tremendous rebuke to sin and unholiness, and thus, and thus brought out the worst in the human heart. He would reveal people's sins. He would reveal the wickedness in people's heart. 
things. People couldn't stand it. They just couldn't be, they had to say things, they had to rebuke him, they had to stop him. But as we'll see, or as we already know, they, they couldn't. Their hearts were revealed, and when you encounter him, your heart will be revealed. He will make known what's really in your heart. And third, yes, I'm sorry, third, yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Simeon here, Simeon here was predicting the grief which would flood Mary's heart when she would witness the crucifixion and death of her son. You mothers that are here, maybe you can relate to this. Put yourself in Mary's place. How would you feel if your son was up there on the cross, beaten, tortured, suffocating, nails pierced in his hands and his feet? Would that feel like a sword going through your heart, through your soul? I'm not a mom, I'm a dad, and I'll tell you, that's how I'd feel. I'd be crushed. And the, the fact that she was even there to see it, I mean, shows the strength that she had. And fourth, the fourth prophecy was that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The way in which a person reacts to the Savior is a test of his inward motives and affections. And so thus, Simeon's song in includes the ideas of touchstone, stumbling, stumbling stone, stepping stone, and sword. The second encounter we read about, or we read about, was with a prophetess named Anna. She, like Simeon, a member of the faithful few of Israel, who was also anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. Oh, she was, well, that's who she was. Um, she was among the faithful few who was also anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. Her name means grace and was from the tribe of Asher. Now, it's possible that she may have been over 100, 100 years old, having been married for seven years, then widowed for about 84 years. As a prophetess, she undoubtedly received divine revelations and served as a mouthpiece for God. Luke also tells us that she was faithful in her attendance at public services at the temple, worshiping with fastings and prayers night and day. So as you can see, her great age even though she may have been over a hundred years old, didn't keep her from serving the Lord. She was still faithful. She still went to the temple. She still worshiped. She was still dedicated to serving the Lord. Well, like with Simeon, God had Anna at the right place at the right time. She was there just as Simeon was praising the Lord for the child Jesus. And in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord. Now, with what we've been told about them, I have no doubt that their praises were inspired 
by the Spirit of God. And because it was, God accepted it. But Anna did much more than sing. Verse 38 says that she spoke of him to all those who looked for the redemption of Jerusalem. So in other words, in a sense, she was one of the first evangelists by spreading the good news to the other faithful members in Jerusalem who were also expecting redemption. Well, now that the mission had been accomplished, census enrollment, enrollment completed, miraculous, miraculous baby birthed, circumcision performed, a name given, purification carried out, firstborn presented and dedicated, blessings and prophecies heard and stored away in amazement, the new family returned to, to the obscurity of Nazareth. So what did Jesus do during these hidden years of Nazareth? Well, all we're told by Luke is that the child developed physically, intellectually, and spiritually. Just like all children, he passed through the usual stages of physical development, learning to walk, to talk, to play, and to work. Because of this, he can sympathize with us at every stage of our growth. He knows what it's like to crawl as a baby. He knows what it's like to take those first steps he knows what it's like to cry, to be hungry. He knows what it's like to cry out for mom, for dad, to get counsel from them. He knows what it's like to get into issues with friends. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to make friends all those great things that occur during the development of a child. I want to add that none of the other Gospels say he performed any miracles and that any stories that say that he did come from unverified and unreliable sources. Some of you may have heard those stories that well, I won't name them all, but that he performed certain miracles as a child. I think there was even a movie that came out recently that um, mentioned that. But again, any stories that, men that say that come from unverified and unreliable sources. We have to remember that according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Jesus set aside the use of his own divine attributes and submitted himself completely, wholly, to the Father. Spiritually speaking, however, what distinguished him from the rest of his peers was that the grace of God was upon him. This means that he walked in fellowship with God and, depended, and dependent on the Holy Spirit. He studied the Bible, spent time in prayer, and delighted to do his father's will. And in the following section, we'll see him demonstrate it. But before we go there, 
I hope that it's apparent to you now how God pointed to Jesus as the only source of good news in life. He's the only source. There's no other good news out there. There's nothing else that can give you life, can give you true joy, can fill that hole that's in your heart. Now, some of you may may not be able to see just now in the circumstances of your life, or others of you may not see any hope for deliverance from the situation you face. But whatever it is, whether you just don't see it right now or there's no hope, God calls on you to trust Him and wait and to wait and see how He brings your story to a close. Stay on the job faithfully like the shepherds. Watch and trust faithfully like Simeon. Worship and pray faithfully like Anna, even if you're 105. Store up all you know as God's treasures in your mind, waiting for the time when he will give you the key understanding to them, or the key to understanding them. Endure the pains and rejections of life until he causes you to rise up rather than to fall down. If you look closely, both Mary and Joseph didn't find it easy to endure the criticism and judgment that friends put on a pregnant, unmarried couple. Simeon didn't find it easy to wait for Israel's comfort and consolation. And it also wasn't easy for Anna to pray, fast, and worship when each day could have been her last. Mary and Joseph didn't find it easy to give up their son or to to give their son up for the things of the Father. But God came through for them. God eventually showed them that their faith in Him was well-placed. Your faith in Jesus is well-placed too. Christ is the Savior. He proved it in the virgin birth. He proved it on the cross. And He proved it in the empty tomb or by the empty tomb. He proved it to me and He will prove it to you. Give him a chance. Trust him. Believe him. Wait on him. He will be your savior too. I want to read to you an encouraging psalm that may help you during these times. Have helped me and I think will help you. And it's in Psalm 40. You can go there or you can just listen. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. 
He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see, many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. How happy is anyone who has put his trust in the Lord and has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies. Lord my God, you have done many things. Your wondrous works and your plan and your plans for us, none can compare with you. If I were to report and speak of them, they are more that can be told. You do not delight in sacrifice and offering. You open my ears and to you open my ears to listen. You do not ask for a whole burnt offering or a sin offering. Then I said, "See, I have come in the see I have come. In the scroll it is written about me. I delight to do your will, my God, and your instruction is deep within me. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. See, I do not keep my mouth closed, as you know, Lord. I did not hide your righteousness in my heart. I spoke about your faithfulness and salvation. I did not conceal your constant love and truth from the great assembly. Lord, you do not withhold your compassion from me. Your constant love and truth will always guard me, for troubles without number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me. I am unable to see. They are more than the hairs on my head, and my courage leaves me. Lord, be pleased to rescue me. Hurry to help me, Lord. Let those who intend to take my life be disgraced and confounded. Let those who wished me harm be turned back and humiliated. Let those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled because of their shame. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation continually say, the Lord is great. I am oppressed and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my helper and my deliverer. My God, do not delay. Again, comforting words during a difficult time when you've lost hope and when you feel like just giving up because you don't see God's plan or it's not being revealed to you right away. Now Luke does mention one more story from Jesus' young life, which will be, I think we have time to cover it. We'll be covering it for the remainder of our time this morning. So turn with me once more to Luke chapter 2, and let's read the rest of that chapter. Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them 
and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why are you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said, for them, what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Luke here tells us of how a lost 12-year-old Jewish boy was found exactly where he was As pious parents, Joseph and Mary would fulfill God's expectations by going to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When our Lord was 12 years old, the family made their annual pilgrimage there like they normally did for the past since they started going together. However, this time, as they returned home, they didn't notice that Jesus wasn't in the group they were returning with. Now, before accusing Joseph and Mary of being neglectful parents, Keep in, keep in mind that the family would typically travel with a fairly large caravan. The women and children would set the pace leading the way, and the men and young men followed behind. So if this was the case, one of these three, one of these th three things could have occurred. Joseph may have assumed that Jesus was with Mary and the other children. Mary may have assumed that Jesus was with Joseph and the other men. Or they both may have assumed that Jesus was just with, the, with some relative or even possibly with some friends his own age. We're not told who dropped the ball. They, it, it, it appears that they both did. Whatever the situation was, after a whole day of traveling, when it was time to set up camp for the night, they began to make an effort to look for him. But they did not find him. So as any concerned parent would, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now here's the thing. If you're a parent... I want you to think about that for a second. What would be going through your mind? How would you feel if one of your kids went missing? If you couldn't find him? If you went searching among relatives and friends and no one had seen him since we were in Jerusalem, since they were in Jerusalem? What would be going through your mind? Personally, that's one of my biggest fears. And I know Robin and I would flip over every rock to find 
our kid, who would go to the ends of the earth to search for them. I believe this is exactly how Joseph and Mary felt. That anguish, where's Jesus? Where's our son? Brothers and sisters in Christ, this brings up a couple great points. As I mentioned, I don't want to blame them, but someone dropped the ball. It's important, parents, to keep a tab on your kids, regardless of how old they are. If they're young and still living at home, you have every right to know what they're doing where they're at, and who they're with. We have two, pretty much, living at home now full-time. And when they were all living at home, we kept tabs of where they were at. We weren't, and this wasn't to spy on them, to give them a hard time, but it's more so just to know who they're with, where they're at. We have um, that Find My Friends app that we told them even before they got their phones that they were to keep it on just so that we know, not so we can see to, to get on their case about where they're at, just to see where they're at, that if something was to happen, we would know exactly where to go. It's just to know, again, being aware Again, parents, you have a responsibility to the, you've been given this responsibility to take care of your children. You're gonna treasure what you love. You're gonna take care of it. And if you treasure your children, you're gonna keep watch over them. You're gonna know what they're, you're gonna wanna know what they're doing. And for all you young men and women that are here that aren't married and don't freak out, don't flip out. Understand again that when we do this, it isn't to make your life miserable, but rather because we love you. And as I mentioned, we take care of what we love. I'm sure that my, my son just recently got a, a kitten and he's taking care of it. He loves it, he plays with it, he sleeps with the kitten. Kitten's name is Pixie. Um, and you can see that he really loves this cat. But if that cat was to disappear, to run off, I'm sure he would tell you he would freak out. He wouldn't be like, ah, whatever, I don't care. He would go out searching for it. He would send us to go out searching for it. And we would do whatever we could to help him. This is how we feel about you guys, you gals. This is how we feel about our children. Now, if they're older and not living at home anymore, there's nothing wrong 
with calling or texting just to check in. I'm 43 years old and my mom, she still calls me every couple of weeks just to see what I'm up to. And sometimes that conversation will go long and sometimes I have to cut it short. Mom, I'm busy, I gotta do some stuff. But I know that she loves me and she just wants to see what I'm doing. And as a parent, when my kids leave the house and have families of their own, or they're off in a far off country, being missionaries or whatever, you know, starting their businesses, whatever it may be, I'm gonna write them, text them. I'm gonna find some way to communicate with, with them. So again, you older parents, there's nothing wrong. Don't let them tell you. If a kid tells you, don't text me or don't write me or I'll check in with you, don't check in with me. You know, yeah, no, that doesn't fly. That shouldn't fly. You know, this also just occurred to me about the whole find my friends. It, it, it goes both ways. I, you know, it's not one of those things where I set up that app or to just check on, on them. We have it set up so that they know where we're at too. We make it fair, we, we make it right. I mean, we, I have nothing to hide. My wife has nothing to hide. So they know that they can find us wherever we're at. I'm not gonna turn, I'm never gonna turn it off. So again, it goes both ways. First point again was, was that to keep tab of your kids. Secondly, there may be some of you here today who may feel as though you've lost contact with the Lord because of unconfessed sin. Well, let me tell you, the only way to reestablish contact with Him is to go back to the place where fellowship was broken. Then confess and forsake your sin. Isaiah chapter 5, 55 verses 6 and 7 says this, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked, wicked one abandon his ways and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will freely forgive. When you feel as though you've lost him, ask yourself these three questions. When did you most clearly perceive the presence of Jesus? What were you doing? Were you up early in the morning? Was Bible study a priority? Were you worshiping passionately? What were you doing when you were really in touch with Jesus? And if you know the answer to those questions, Return to that place and do it again. Go back there. Go back to the place where fellowship was broken. Confess your sin and then go further back to where you were before that fellowship was bro broken. And go back, to do the, go back into doing those things you were doing before.
Well, we're told in verse 46 that after three days, that's one whole day of traveling home, one whole day of traveling back to Jerusalem, and possibly another day of searching, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Now, there's no suggestion here that he was acting like a know-it-all or that he was disputing with those elders, with those teachers. Rather, it appears as though he acted respectfully towards his teachers by listening intently and asking good questions in humility and quietness. And because of this, those teachers, his teachers, were amazed at both his questions and his answers. And when his parents arrived and saw him there, they were even amazed when they found Jesus participating so intelligently in a discussion with those who were so many years older than him, so many, with so many more years of experience. Nevertheless, Jesus endured a parental scolding. He was, he was scolded. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously, anxiously searching for you. Again, all you mothers, do you blame Mary for expressing her anxiety and her irritation? One of my kids came home and they've done this before. At one o'clock in the morning, being gone all day, Son, where have you been? I've been trying to get a hold of you all day. Do you know the anxiety that I was feeling? Do you know what you did to us? Yeah, again, any mom would probably be saying or doing the same thing. Yet his explanation must have amazed them even more. Why are you searching for me? Didn't you know that it, was an, that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? In the New King James Version, the end of verse 49 says that I must be about my father's business. These first recorded words of Jesus indicate three things. That he was well aware of his own identity at an early age. That he was also aware of who his true father was and the special relationship that he had with him. And lastly, he understood what his divine mission was, to do the will of his Father. Now, when he said this to them, both Mary and Joseph didn't understand what he was telling them. Why? Why didn't, he underst- why didn't they understand? Well, here are a couple suggestions. One, although Jesus was their kid and would go home with them, his primary identity as the Messiah hadn't been revealed to them yet. That eventually would come from his father. It would be revealed to them later on. My other suggestion is this. It was just weird for a 12-year-old kid to say something like that. What are you 
what do you mean? You were in your father's house and taking care of father's business and what are you talking about? It just was, would have been odd. It would have been odd if one of my kids would say something like that. Well, regardless, after all was said and done, they all returned to Jerusalem together. And this chapter ends with Luke telling us three more facts about Jesus. Jesus' years as a youth. Jesus was obedient to them. Now it's difficult to fathom that the creator of the universe would voluntarily submit himself in obedience to that which he himself created. But he did. He voluntarily submitted himself. Why? Because even though he knew infinitely more than his parents, Jesus knew what he was about and was secure in who he was. You see, and here's something important that I want every young person to know. The more mature and secure a person is, the easier submission is to them. They understand that it isn't about how much one knows, but about who one is becoming. So whether you're young, you're old, you're rich, you're poor, you're book smart, or you're street smart, you'll be showing how wise you really are by willingly submitting to your parents, your employer, and your leaders, even if they don't know as much as you do. Therefore, submission is lowering yourself to elevate others for the glory of God. Spurgeon said this, it is perhaps one of the hardest struggles of the Christian life to learn this sentence. Not unto us, not unto us, but into thy name be glory. Now this verse also tells us that his mother kept all these things in her heart. Now I imagine Mary, Mary keeping something like a mental scrapbook of all the amazing things Jesus said and did as he was growing up. And that library in her mind just must have been filled with scrapbook, with, this, with these scrapbooks. Now, um, she may not have understood everything that happened, but she treasured them deep within her heart nevertheless. You may not always understand what the Lord is doing or saying right away, but you can be assured that, his, that, that in his perfect timing, he will reveal it to you. When Jesus was about to wash Peter's feet, Peter wasn't sure what to make of it. He, he said, Lord, are you going to wash? My, I should be washing your feet. But Jesus said this to him in John 13, 7. What I'm doing, you do not realize now, but afterward, you will understand. So until he reveals it to you, until he makes it known, keep it in your heart, treasure it, and just wait patiently for him to explain it to you. Because believe me, when he does reveal it to you, when he does explain it to you, you're going to be like, 
Oh, that's why. That, I get it now. The wait will be worth it. A lot of times, again, using the example of us parents or kids, they don't understand why we're doing certain things or why we say certain things, why we're telling them, hey, why we're sometimes hard on them for getting high grades, being responsible for their actions and, and finishing, the, getting the job done and, and finishing it right. They may not understand, they may just think that you're getting on their case and that is dumb, is, but these are lessons that they'll get later on. You can explain it to them, but really, they won't get it until they're out in the real world. So again, this is what the Lord is sometimes showing us when He does things, when He does something that boggles, that just blows your mind away. You may not get it, you may not understand it, and it may take some time, but He will reveal it to you. And the wait will be worth it. And in the final verse of chapter 2, Dr. Luke writes that Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and with people. He grew smarter. He grew stronger. His personal relationships, his personal relationship to his father grew closer. And he also grew in social respect. And as we saw earlier, Jesus' wisdom was already noteworthy as a young boy. And the rabbis marveled at his understanding at age 12. So his advancement now would have been, adva- would have been ast- astounding by the time he began his public ministry. Jesus is a wonderful example for every young per- person to follow. He grew in a balanced way without neglecting any part of his life. And his priority was to do the will of his father. He knew how to listen, how to ask the right questions. He learned how to work and was obedient to his parents. So as I conclude here, two chapters into Luke, we know what to expect from Jesus. He is the son of his parents and the son of his father. He is the good news, gospel, joy, Savior, Messiah, Lord God, cause of amazement and wonder, one who fulfills the clause of the law, full-fledged member of the covenant people of Israel. He is the source of comfort and consolation for which Israel waited, the promised bringer of salvation, the light-giving revelation to Gentiles and glory to Israel, the fulfillment of God's promised redemption. More ominously, he is the source of falling and rising, the target of sneers and rejection, the revelation of the true thoughts and belief of Israel, the cause of heart-piercing pain for his mother. Still, he is only a child, gradually growing up like every other child but but precocious, full of wisdom, and intent on fulfilling the things his father expects of him, even 
when things, even when this brings consternation and anguish to parents who cannot understand all that is going on with this human yet divine son whom God has given them to raise. Thus here, in these first two chapters, we are set for the gospel story. The story of how the world received this God slash man as he left his to enter his father's ministry. And that's what we'll be covering. That's what we'll be covering next. So let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, you are thankful for these stories, first two chapters, just setting everything up, Lord, showing us how you have a divine plan, that you set everything up perfectly, that you ordained it from long ago, that you know exactly what you're doing. We, that is just so amazing, Lord. Lord, forgive us, Lord, for those times that we've been stubborn, we've been disobedient, we've been, just haven't been walking in ways that we left you behind because we haven't been paying attention, Lord. Our focus shifted from you and onto other things. Lord, guide us back to that place, to that place of worship, to that place of hearing your word, of just spending time with you, Lord. to just rededicate ourselves to you, Lord. May we be like him and just want to serve you, to be in your house. We love you. We praise you. We honor you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.